I don't want myself ever to think there's something special about me that I deserve the kingdom and I need to be reminded again and again and again that I have to come to the foot of the cross every day to receive fresh grace to be reminded that I am a nobody. What do you need to teach a Bible teacher in order to help them teach the Bible? This is the question we posed to William Taylor today as we discussed a recent talk series in Luke chapter 17 to 19 and focused in today's episodes on a talk William gave on three stories in Luke chapter 18, which was given to Bible teachers and leaders in his church. You can find this talk on the Bible Matters podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. William is the senior pastor of St. Helens Bishopsgate Church in London and author of multiple books, most recently including Revolutionary Sex, Revolutionary Work and Revolutionary Worship. Today, we sat down with William and asked him more about what to teach to Christian leaders in order to encourage them to keep going and keep teaching the Bible faithfully, as well as asking him more about this section of Luke's Gospel and the three narratives of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the children being brought to Jesus, and the rich man who asks how he may inherit eternal life. My name's Tiff Stromso. And my name's Leo Elborn. And this is the Bible Matters Podcast, encouraging faithful Bible teaching and ministry. William Taylor, welcome to the show. Well, it's absolutely lovely to be here. I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. William, why does a Christian leader need to keep coming back to the gospel basics? I'm not sure that there is such a thing as the gospel basics, really. I think, you know, it's the gospel, uh, front and centre, beginning to end. That's what keeps us and that's what grows us. What does gospel mean? Gospel means announcement. And it is the announcement through which we were converted, called to Christ, and it's the announcement of the gospel through which he grows us. We're talking today about teaching Christian leaders Luke's gospel. William, you taught three stories from Luke chapter 18. That's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the children coming to Jesus, and the story of the rich young ruler. You delivered these talks to leaders from your church. Can you just give me a better sense of who these leaders are? All of our small groups are led by people who are regular members of the congregation. And we try and invest a, a very significant amount of time in training the people who are going to lead our small groups, uh, whether it's the youth work or uh, the students or, or whether it's regular uh, members of the congregation in small groups. If a church leader, if you like, delegates the responsibility for teaching the congregation in the middle of a week to somebody else, I think those leaders need constant training and encouragement. And we train our leaders at the beginning of the year and in an ongoing way, week by week by week through the year. Once a year, we get all our leaders together for a whole weekend. We happen to go away, but one could equally do it you know, on a full Saturday. And at that weekend away, we gather as many of the leaders as we possibly can 
And more often than not, I will give them training to encourage and strengthen them in the leadership that they're engaged in. So just let me get this straight. So these were just Bible teachers uh, in your church. So when we say leaders, it's people with a responsibility to teach the Bible. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Actually, I don't like referring to St. Helens as my church. I think it's uh, the, the Lord Jesus's church. So <laughs> the church I serve, yeah, they are they are regular Bible teachers. And I think I would be happy. I mean, I've actually done this material for senior ministers of churches as well, subsequent to doing it with our small group leaders, because I think we're all engaged in word ministry and the word ministry we're engaged in, you know, we find the same encouragement and exactly the same pressures and so forth. What's this weekend called? We used to call it the resuscitation weekend. The, <laughs> and it was known kind of colloquially as the resus weekend. Resuscitation, like someone's died and you're breathing back life into them. Is that? And I think, I mean, by February, it's normally February, early March. I think by February, early March, you know, when you've been working hard in leading your group, some of them are giving four or five hours preparation time to teach the passage and they've got busy jobs. And I guess that's halfway through the academic year, isn't it? It is halfway through the academic. So we call it the resource weekend. Let's just take a step back. So you got your leaders, you took them away on a weekend away and you spoke to them from Luke's gospel. But for just a moment, can we just think about Luke's gospel? I guess we all know a bit about it. I'm sure the listeners are pretty well aware of Luke. But can you just take us back to the basics? What is Luke's gospel? I think all of the gospel writers obviously are writing for a purpose and with a commission. So we're very familiar with John's gospel, for example. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is Christ through believing you might have life in his name. And I think we're pretty familiar with the idea that Luke, Paul's travel companion, saw himself as having a responsibility to interview the eyewitnesses and to put together an ordered account, as he says he does in Luke chapter one, verses one to four. So in you know, we all know this. Any piece of Bible teaching, we need to ask ourselves, what is the author's purpose? We we believe that the author has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to write the material he's written, and he's done it for a reason. And if we're gonna un- genuinely understand what he's doing, we need to know the reason why he's written what his pastoral purpose is, because that within its original context becomes, if you like, the application of any Bible teaching you're doing. Now, Luke says up front that he's written these things, chapter one, verses one to four, having done his research, having talked to the eyewitnesses, um, that we may have certainty concerning uh, the things uh, that Theophilus has been taught. I think we're quite quick to make Luke shallow in the certainty he's he's aiming for. The more you study, the more you see there are different spheres of certainty that Luke is aiming at. So, for example, he, he wants us to have certainty in the credibility of the gospel. And you see that he wants us to have certainty in the historical credibility. So there's all the material. I mean, repeatedly, it's eyewitness material. You have 
historical detail, uh, you know, when you get to Acts, meteorological detail, geographical detail. But he's wanting us to see that actually it's got historical credibility. That That's pretty straightforward. But also because in chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about the things that have been fulfilled amongst us uh, then he, or accomplished amongst us, he's also wanting to us under the certainty heading, as it were, to have certainty around if you like, the theological fulfillment that we have in the gospel. So you've got historical, you've got theological. I also think very, very big, you see this as you get towards the end of Acts, but it's all the way through. He wants us to have certainty about um, the credibility of the gospel in, in the public square. So there's a huge amount around you know, the Pharisees and why the Pharisees are wrong and why the kind of first century Judaism has got it so profoundly wrong. Just as there's a huge amount uh, in, in the end of Acts around the trials that should leave the Christian with deep certainty, not only that the gospel is historically credible, not only that it is theologically credible, but also um, that, that the gospel stands in the public square. I mean, we could talk a lot about the theological credibility. I think that's a huge part of Luke's apologetic to Gentiles that we see that there's this whole hinterland um, which sets up the gospel categories. And I think in Luke's evangelism to Gentiles, he draws very, very heavily on the Old Testament. Now, we could have a whole <laughs> section on that. And that's certainty around credibility. But then there's also certainty around content. So all the way through, we're having the content of what the Lord Jesus has done filled out and developed. And, and um, then there's also, um, he wants us to have certainty as the, the gospel is proclaimed and declared. So I think there are three broad areas of certainty. The first one has got kind of three sub-areas, look through and you look at chapter one, chapter 24, he's wanting the gospel both defined, defended, and declared. Just on that then, why do you think this is a good book to teach for encouraging Christian leaders? Well, I think the gospel anyway will encourage the Christian leader or not, and I don't want to put a leader in a kind of radically different category. But when we come to this part of Luke's gospel, I think this part of Luke's gospel is specifically designed by Dr. Luke to instruct us in what the work of the Lord Jesus is today as we live between his first coming and his second coming. I actually think when we come to the gospel, we're coming to... Luke's seminary. I think the Bible writers are the church's theologians and that we're looking to the Bible writers to teach us. And I think we're in Dr. Luke's seminary. And this part of his gospel is specifically designed to show us the kingdom of God as it happens today, if you like. And we'll, we'll go into that. But so I, I don't I mean, would you go to any part of Luke? to encourage Christian leaders? Yes. But would you go to this part particularly? I really think you would, because it's here to show us what the work of 
of the kingdom is today. So William, on that, you preached this section of Luke's gospel. How did you begin to discern (laughs) this section from other bits? Well, I think the first commitment was that there are sections. And that commitment came from studying Luke 1, 1 to 4. I have written an orderly account. Does he mean it's orderly in terms of kind of theological fulfillment? He could do. Does it mean it's orderly in terms of kind of geographical from Galilee to Jerusalem? He could do. There's certainly that turning point in chapter 9, verse 51. You know, he set his face for Jerusalem. And so I think kind of discerning this section came from a prior conviction that Luke meant what he said when he said he'd written an orderly account and that he has operated um, deliberately to, to, to order it. We're used now to seeing John in terms of its order and structure, Mark in terms of his order and structure, Matthew order and structure. But when it came to Luke, an awful lot of people were kind of saying, oh, well, the parables from Luke. <laughs> people weren't actually saying, what is Luke doing at this point in the text? And why is he teaching this? And why does this follow that? And, and so forth. So I was asking myself, well, is there any sort of structure? You know, you read, you read, you read again, mm. you read again, you preach it, mm. you think about it again, you teach it somewhere else, mm. and, and so on. And I began to notice that... There wasn't just the journey marker in chapter 9, verse 51, but there were a series of other journey markers. He set his face for Jerusalem and on his way to Jerusalem. And so you've got kind of one in chapter 10, verse 38. There's another one around about 13, verse 22. Uh, There's another one at the start of our piece. Is it chapter... Is that 17, verse 11? 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem. And and there's another one in chapter 19, verse 28. You know, now he's entering into Jerusalem. And so I started saying, you know, this is what you're Mm -hmm. doing when you're doing a preparation. Saying, hmm, hang on, is there a pattern here? And I guess that only happens when you get really familiar with the text. As you said, you've preached it multiple times, read it multiple times. The more and more familiar you get, the more you start noticing. Oh, hold on. We're moving on here, moving on here. Yeah. I noticed that the beginning of each section, there appears to be something of a question. The, The most sort of obvious one, I suppose, will those who are saved be few in chapter 13 verse, what is it, 23, 22, 23, 24? And then you say to yourself, well, it's interesting there's a question, but all the material following this seems to be out the number of those who are going to be saved, why some will be saved, why others won't. It seems to be that Luke is putting together a piece on those who will be saved. You come to the beginning of our piece, well, 17 verse 11 through to the end of the leper incident, there is no question, but then straight away, when asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Ah, oh, yes, verse 20. Thank you. Then you, you begin to say, well, does this hang together around mm-hmm. the coming of the kingdom? And I, so I suppose kind of you ask the question, how did I come to see any sections in this? And, and you may think I'm completely batty and you know, <laughs> the, these sections don't work at all. And when I meet Luke in the new creation, I'm longing <laughs> to see him to say, hey, Luke, what do you think? <laughs> but I, I'm, I am profoundly persuaded that the theologians of the church 
are the Bible writers and that they have ordered their material and they have a theology driving their material and they're seeking to teach us. And so I'm in Luke's seminary and I'm asking myself, okay, what's this module, you might say? And I think it's a module about the coming of the kingdom. So, William, can you tell us what is going on in this particular section of the gospel? Just remind us of the key points. So in terms of a kind of overview of the section, I think we begin in chapter 17, verse 11 through to verse 19. And there we have uh, the, the 10 lepers. And it finishes in verse 19, that incident with, go your way, your faith has saved you. Now, that is a classic statement in Luke's gospel. Your faith has saved you. Now, what I'm suggesting here in 1711 through 19 is that it's, it's like revision. Luke is a brilliant teacher. And so he's just showing us this picture of that is the salvation we're talking about. But, but then verse 20 through 21, you get the big question, you know, when will the kingdom come? And he begins by talking about the final coming of the kingdom and the fact that it has not yet come. And then at the end of the section in chapter 19 and verse 11 through 27, he talks about the final coming of the kingdom and accountability when he comes for those who think that he's going to come immediately. But in the middle, he answers the Pharisee's question. When will the kingdom come? And, and the kingdom doesn't come with great whiz-bangs and, you know, <laughs> hurrahs and all the rest of it. It comes, um, it is not coming with signs to be observed. Um, it's actually in the midst of you. And so then you're saying, well, in what way is it in the midst of us? And, and, and we then begin to see, well, these different incidents, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the little children, the rich ruler, um, the third time he foretells his death, the blind man seeing, and Zacchaeus, um, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I think your points for this talk is this right. So the kingdom comes as the far off are brought near, as the nobody is made a somebody and the impossible is made possible, which is really, really helpful. But just on what you what you said just now, what are the ways we can mistakenly think the kingdom is coming? Well, I think up front he talks about it, doesn't he, in verses 20 through 37, where, where he's saying, they will say to you, look there or look here, don't go out and follow them. When he actually comes, it will be obvious. So it's not coming with signs and wonders to be observed. Mm. And I think, I mean, it's really striking that he says precisely the opposite of what some people say the kingdom coming today looks like. No, it's not going to come in this flash way. And it's not going to come you know, in the kind of prosperity gospel sort of way. It's, it's, it's going to come quietly and it's going to be almost kind of unseen. It is quite a shock, isn't it? As in the coming of God, I guess it might be natural to think, yeah, it's going to be pretty flashy when it's here. So why do you think Luke wants his readers to know about how the kingdom comes at this point? I suppose because of the many, many misunderstandings. And he wants us to have confidence in the ministry that the Lord Jesus did and does of you know, opening the eyes of the blind. I mean, for, for example, 
not the first talk that we're looking at now, not the talk that we're looking at now, but in, in the, the third talk in the series of four, we begin with uh, Jesus's prediction of his death on the cross. And if, if we don't understand that actually it's in weakness uh, through the death of Jesus and the message of the cross, that's, if you like, the key to seeing the kingdom and entry to the kingdom. And if we don't understand that it comes to the little child you know, and the person who comes in humility, which, you know, go back to Luke chapter one and the Magnificat and, and, and so forth. Um, if we don't understand that, then we're going to be engaged in an altogether wrong kind of ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess we particularly want our leaders to know that if they are going to be looking after the sheep, they need to know what what this work is that we're involved in now, what it looks like. It's so liberating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you think, I mean, I'm thinking sitting in front of me will be people who are doing exactly the same ministry as I am. They may not be given as long to do it as I am, but it's exactly the same ministry, word ministry, teaching the word to a little group of people. They will be feeling exactly the same things as I feel and every other Christian leader feels, you know, oh, nothing seems to be happening. It all looks very weak. Mm, and slow. It's so unglamorous. Tempted to Mm. exactly the sort of temptations, you know, ramping up the rhetoric a bit, you know, turning the emotional screw a bit, you know, ramping up, you know, the music so everybody's having a particular type of experience or whatever it happens to be, rather than quietly getting on and doing the work and allowing God to do the work through the word of the gospel, which is what true ministry is. William, let's think for a moment just about the specific talk on Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 30. So this was the talk with the Pharisee and the tax collector, the children coming to Jesus and the story of the rich young ruler. As you came to study these passages to write this talk, was there anything that particularly struck you that you haven't really seen before? I was taught RE, religious education, which we had to do at school by a guy who we rather unkindly called Dippy Simpson. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. He was our classics teacher, actually, but he also taught us. I mean, this is going back into the dark ages where we had to do, you know, Latin and stuff. Anyway, Dippy was interminably dull. And um, he, I think, managed to try and change his dullness by raising and lowering his voice. Anyway, Dippy taught us RE, and he taught us that the gospel writers basically got together a whole load of stories and strung them together like pearls uh, on a string, beads on a, on, on a string, with little connection between them. And they were all kind of pretty randomly put together. I mean, imagine my surprise when I got to theological college and was studying under some of the liberals, and they seemed to be teaching exactly the same thing. <laughs> The reality is that Luke, our teacher, our instructor, has put together these stories with a, I say ruthless logic, but with a strong logic. So I'm always asking myself when I come to teach the Gospels, why does this incident follow that incident? Why does the next incident follow the next incident? And until you are able to answer that, I don't think you have actually understood what the author is seeking to do. 
And what one will do instead is just load your own ideas in. Whereas as you begin to see that there is a question being answered and that the question is, um, how does the kingdom come? And that it comes in this unseen way. So I think the thing that has gripped me more and more, I mean, there are lots of little aspects of the different uh, three pieces in, in, in the second talk in the series that, 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 that struck me. But the thing that really has kind of gripped me more and more is, is the logic from A to B to C to D to E to F of the six particular incidents. And can I ask, William, how does that change how you preach each one of the stories? Well, you preach it in a context with the context being the author's context. I, and I think this, again, it really matters. So when I'm kind of speaking to our young preachers, sometimes I will talk about what I call trampoline preaching. And trampoline preaching is not preaching whilst on a trampoline. That does sound quite fun. It, it does. It, does <laughs> sounds, it sounds very dangerous. Dippy Simpson should have tried that to be a bit more interesting. He, he would have really, it would have helped him a great deal. But trampoline preaching is where I have my framework and my theological grid. I look at a passage, I find my framework, and I basically bounce off and use the passage and the teaching to illustrate my framework. And what I should be doing, if I really believe that the Bible writer is the theologian and the teacher, and I'm in his seminary, is I should be saying, no, 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 what, what is the point that he's looking to make? And it, it, I think it impacts it really very radically. You know, the Pharisee and the tax collector, here we are. Uh, God, it's the word, it's the Hillisterium word, isn't it? God have mercy on me. One, one you'll hear in the talk, but one of the guys just out of college says, it's a bloody request. And it is, you know, that, that was a new way of putting it. Uh, God have mercy on me. And this man went down to his house justified. I mean, that is such a striking phrase that this individual is an individual thing has the final verdict delivered over his life as an individual today, and he goes away from the temple down to his house justified. And you, you know, there are a lot of new ideas knocking around in terms of justification, perspectives on justification that you, you know, can't be absolutely certain until the last day. Well, actually, this incident on its own, I think, undermines a lot of that thinking. We have an individual, he has the verdict of the last day, it's announced over him, and he goes down to his house away from the temple, knowing that he's justified. And, and then you can see the little children flow straight out of that. Okay, of such, i.e. people like the tax collector who, who come with nothing in their hands. So um, I, what did I think as nobody is made of somebody? I mean, you could spend a whole, you could spend an entire Sunday sermon just on uh, those first few verses. So can you just spell out for me, if you were trampoline preaching on this passage with the Pharisee and the tax collector, what might you say? And why didn't you say that? What did you say instead? Well, I think there are several different places you might go, but you might say, well, I'm going to give almost a standalone talk on justification. Because the, the, the word justified is there and yeah, atonement. That's right. I mean, I think you get the same. I mean, I remember listening to somebody doing a, 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 a talk on Zacchaeus and, you know, up the, up the tree. And basically it was a talk on election. And that 
that isn't the primary thing that that I mean it's it's a key part of it, but actually that's not what where Luke's really going with Zacchaeus. So where is Luke going here if it's not a talk on justification? How well, it, how does thinking about it as the kingdom of God, where yeah, do we yeah, push instead? Thank you. Well I wouldn't say it's not a talk on justification because of course this is a I mean this man went down to his house justified and God, you know, have mercy make atonement mm. for me. But actually, it's the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And that, of course, then leads into the little child. You might choose to do that as one talk with both of those incidents from the pulpit. But, you know, the one leads into the other. Mm. And it's the, mm. the it's the tax collector who, um you know, is standing far off his posture, whereas the Pharisee is standing by himself. Mm. The Pharisee prays only about himself. So that would be a much bigger... Mm. thrust in your Hence talk. your point, the kingdom comes as the far off are brought near, yeah, teaching right. a point about the kingdom, still about justification. William, you have this view of the section that it's about the kingdom of God. How does that change how you preach each of the stories? I think I want to mildly question that it's my view in that I think Luke tells us that's what it's about. <laughs> and so that's what we should teach it as being about. So they ask when the kingdom of God would come, and he answers, the kingdom is not coming with signs. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And you know, when you get the little child, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child, or uh, there's no one who's left five brother, parents, children for the sake of the kingdom of God. So I think I just push back a tiny bit, at, even when it comes to the power of the ten minas. He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So I think careful reading of the text shows us that actually it's Luke's view that it's about the coming of the kingdom. And that's that's why, and quite how you do it, I think we've talked about already. William, can I ask you about a tricky verse? Verse 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, you said in relation to this verse that we as Christian leaders can sometimes feel sorry for ourselves. Was Peter feeling sorry for himself. And we know that for sure. Uh, maybe he wasn't. And so maybe I got that wrong. We don't quite know the tone when Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And maybe the Lord Jesus is congratulating him from doing the, for, for doing the right thing. I think at the end of the previous section, it's really interesting how the previous section ends. That Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 17 is a very tricky few verses. But 7 through 10 of chapter 17 does seem, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. And he does seem to be correcting within the disciple a sense of 
is the word entitlement? I don't quite know the best way to put it. And so I've wondered whether that's in Peter's mind and maybe because of the people sitting in front of me, I lent in that direction. I mean, do you think that was a wrong direction? I'm really interested, Tiff, because... I don't think necessarily wrong, I think. I wish, <laughs> I wish we could read the tone into it. But I think you're right. The disciples often get it wrong. All credit to them. They do often get it wrong, and we do too. So actually, I think that's a really helpful thing to teach. It's certainly encouraging, isn't it, that you will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, mm. eternal life. Mm. But I'm, I mean, well, we can all work on that when we're coming to teach it again next time. That's the lovely thing, because, yeah. you know, God willing, we're going to have another opportunity to teach it at some stage. William, can I just push back at you for a moment? I mean, when I was working uh, here in the city in finance, we used to have kind of training things, I suppose, on leadership. And they'd come and tell us how great we were and kind of hype us up, get us excited. I remember listening to this talk and thinking, actually, quite a lot of it was quite humbling. As in, well, I think you quite explicitly called everyone a nobody a few times, in fact, you mentioned how we're not special because we're leaders or anything like that. Obviously, Christ was humble. We want to be humble. But were you trying to particularly bring that out in this talk, a kind of humbling element for your leaders? I don't think they're my leaders, but I think that what we're learning here is how the kingdom comes. and. I think I don't want myself ever to think there's something special about me that I deserve the kingdom. And I need to be reminded again and again and again that I have to come to the foot of the cross every day to receive fresh grace, to, to be reminded that I am a nobody. And where we start thinking, because we've been to college or are working in such and such a, a, a congregation or, you know, pride comes in, doesn't it? So, so easily. And of course, there's an element of that about the, the, the ruler as well. What must I do to inherit internal life? So works religion does seem to be behind so much of this. It's there with the Pharisee. It's where they're with the disciples. I mean, think, actually, the disciples keep getting it wrong. They get it wrong, don't they? They rebuke here, but then they rebuke with the blind beggar. Again, they, they rebuke him and tell him not to come, as if somehow they're more special and Jesus couldn't possibly be. So I think we're being shown something about Jesus all the way through Luke's gospel. It's there, isn't it, with the reference back to Hannah's song uh, and right at the beginning and the, and the humble being lifted up and exalted. And so all the way through, I think, we're, we're being reminded and brought back onto our knees at the foot of the cross. And is this true in every church? I'm sure it is. It's certainly true for us, us at St. Helens, that as a group of leaders with 
so much invested into us all, so much time given to our training, it's very easy for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And I think this part of the gospel, how the kingdom comes, and it's massive. I mean, in, in the public square aspect of certainty, we have to get reminded that the Pharisees um, are not where it's at, and they look so impressive, and they are so full of themselves. And in terms of the gospel standing in the public square, you know, the failure of the Pharisee, and Jesus tells us to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So there you are, the tax collector and the Pharisees in all of us. So William, you took the leaders on the resuscitation weekends how do you resuscitate a Christian leader? With the gospel. <laughs> In a sense, you could do anything from Luke Acts, and it should resuscitate. But there was a deliberate choice of a part of Luke's writing where I think he's wanting to get us clear on the work of the gospel today. And at the beginning of the section, you have you know, the ultimate coming of the kingdom. And at the end of the section, you have the responsibility, which we're going to be looking at in due course, the 10 minas and, and the reward and so forth. But in the middle, you've got this particular question. And so, I mean, we could have gone to all sorts of places. Uh, you know, we could have done it from the pastoral epistles. You know, we could have done the recess from, you know, discipleship in John 14 and 15, all sorts of places you can go. But this is a great piece on what the work that we're all engaged in as gospel workers is, is about. William, can I just push back at you? There are Christian books on leadership. Why not go for them or a certain topic about Christian leadership for these Christian leaders who you are speaking to? Well, I don't want to be overly reductionistic. But at the same time, I want to say, I think the Bible is sufficient. Trace back to the early 1990s. We were all being told, you must train leaders, you must train leaders, you must train leaders. And a number of people developed leadership training courses for their leaders in small groups and so forth across churches. And I noted then in the 90, early 1990s that a number of these leadership courses were effectively at a kind of microcosm of seminary. And so, so you'd have a series of modules on a series of studies on how to study the Bible, and then a series of studies on basic Christian doctrine, and a series of study, a bit of church history and that sort of stuff, and maybe some skills and so forth. And I remember thinking, even then, well, don't we believe the Bible is sufficient? And so even then, we taught our leaders the pastoral epistles for a year. And we led studies, and then we asked them to lead studies, and we critiqued their studies, and they critiqued our studies. And together, we worked on the pastorals. Now, at the end of the year, together, we had a shared theology of ministry and understanding of Christian ministry from the pastoral epistles. I think we did a little bit of kind of basic doctrine around the edges, but that was the fundamental. So I am convinced deeply <laughs> that... If we will study, and the thing about studying the scriptures and doing it, if you like, from the ground up like this, 
is you're giving people then the skills to study the scriptures for themselves. And so they will be being trained by the scriptures, which I believe are sufficient to produce a Christian leader. William, can I ask you, how have these truths from Luke 18 helped you as a Christian leader? Well, they bring me back. I mean, I think of Jesus' work on the cross and the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and suffer. We tackle that at the beginning of the third talk. There is the lens through which you enter the kingdom, if you like, see the kingdom, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I mean, you can't teach that but be brought back to the foot of the cross. Um, the, the Pharisee, you look at the Pharisee who prays about his stands far off and say, you know, you can't, unless you have not prayed <laughs> at all as you've done your preparation or sought to think about it regarding yourself and your own view of yourself, the little child, you know, you, I mean, I suppose you could try and teach, tra- teach it, te- treating it purely as an academic Mm. Exercise, but if you've done any proper prayerful preparation, meditation on it, then the lessons that we're learning, I mean, the Peter piece, you may or may not agree with the way I took it, but you can't teach verse 29 without saying, Oh Lord, have I been presumptuous, Mm. thinking Mm. I might have contributed something to my Mm. salvation, that actually it is possible with man because I've done this, that, and the other, and woe is me, and well done me for doing so much. Mm-hmm. You know, you, unless you are just totally hard-hearted and not applying the Bible that mm-hmm. you're teaching mm-hmm. to yourself or praying it through. Um, mm. I was really struck by your line about how the Christian leader needs to come back to the Lord and confess that they are a nobody. We've talked about the fact that that will inevitably happen when you read these scriptures for yourself, but why is it so essential that that is what happens? Well, because it's his work and not ours. It's his church, it's not, not ours. You know, it's his ministry, it's not ours. It's, it's a gift. We're not special. What I've found really helpful from these talks is just that message of this is how the kingdom comes. This is how Jesus is bringing in his kingdom. A little while ago, I tried to commit to making it my very first thoughts when I wake up, pray the Lord's Prayer before I pick up my phone or moan about my day to my wife or anything like that. And that line, let your kingdom come, is easy to scoot over and not really think about it. But actually, as a result of this lesson from Luke 18, you realise what you're praying there is, Lord, let the nobody become a somebody today. Let the far off be brought near today. Lord, do the impossible today. Just so helpful, I guess, as a Christian trying to do the work of the kingdom to realise that is the work that we're involved in. And that piece, you know, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You know, that, that's essential, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I can think of the people I'm reading the Bible with one-to-one at the moment you know, one of the guys I've been reading with for now almost a year, the only way that individual is going to come to faith is through the Lord working. Another individual who, you know, so excited about 
looked like he'd come through to faith. Now, where is he? He seems to have disappeared off the face of the map. The only way that individual, you know, it's impossible with man. I, I can't do it. And it happens quietly in this unseen way. And doing this puts us as Christian leaders in our right place. Mm. It keeps us focused on what we're doing, which is just being faithful to the opportunity God gives us. And it reminds us God is actually the one doing the work, changing hearts, opening blind eyes. Absolutely. William, is there anything about this talk that you would change if you preached it again? I don't know that I would do this talk in this way in many settings at all. So as I've thought back through the talk, you know, it's it's kind of not, if you like, a model talk <laughs> because it's not a Sunday talk. It's and so I'm I'm not sure that we pay the detail that we should if we were looking at it week by week, Sunday by Sunday, to each part of each talk. So it is slightly more broad brush following the overall theme of the of the of the section. And and so I think if I was if I was doing it again, I want to devote more time to each piece and drill down more. Thank you so much, William, for coming in and chatting with us today. We look forward to having you again next week on the show when we look at the next talk in the series. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to being with you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Matters podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts? The Bible Matters Project is funded entirely by the generous gifts of our listeners. And if you yourself would like to become a financial partner with us, you can find more details on how to give in the show notes. The Bible Matters Podcast is an initiative of St. Helens Bishopsgate and is created by myself, Tiff Stromso, along with Leo Elborn. Music for this episode was written and produced by Leo Elborn and Josh Stidwell. You can listen to more of Josh's work at Stids with a one, that is S-T-1-D-S. Thanks again for joining and we hope to see you again soon.